Well, hello there, and welcome to Certified Forgotten. It is year four or something of this grand experiment that we're under, and nobody has taken our business model. Nobody is out there running a podcast about films with 10 or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, I think because it makes your job really fucking hard. But you know what? We've got this lane all to ourselves, and we're super happy to be bringing another horror musical to you today. We're going to get to that in a little minute, but I want to start by saying hello, Matt Donato. How is your new year going? How you doing, bud? We're doing better since the last time we talked and I almost had an existential crisis just in the beginning of our podcast and for the first five minutes. So we're in a better spot. You know, we're just like easing into it. I've written some things I'm really proud of and it is, uh, you know, we're a month in and I've already done that. So I'm trying to positive blinders on doing good. You say existential crisis. I say cold open. I think that they're pretty much at this point, the same thing for us. So, but I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that you have your feet underneath you. And I'm really excited to hear that, uh, uh, you're you're out there writing some stuff because I feel like you go in waves a little bit where you're like I'm just I'm just you know fulfilling somebody else's requirements versus like oh I'm writing things that get me excited. You got to do more reporting last year, which was really cool too. So glad to see that happening again this year. I got to write about Torque this year already. It's got to be a good year. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're, we're doing good. Um, I have a feeling this is going to be a little industry focus today because our our guest has has been working at every level and every side of film criticism. And we're, we're deep in the middle of award season and there's a lot going on. So uh, let, let's go ahead and get started. If you can introduce our guests, we'll start having some conversations about all this shit. Yeah, this is a uh, number three for said guests. So I'm going to keep it short and sweet. Uh, you know, they're writing on Slash Film. You know, they're podcasting many places, but most importantly, this ends at prom. This is BJ Colangelo. Welcome back. Hi, hi, hi. So BJ, we were talking a little bit before the show, uh, before we started recording, about everything that's kind of going on in the world right now. Um, some of it good, some of it bad, a lot of it discourse. So I want to start by asking you a little bit. You know, it, I, I'll, I'll remind folks that you know we'll link to the previous episodes that BJ's participated in. So if you want to learn a little bit about their journey through horror, if you want to learn a little bit about horror musicals in particular, we've got you covered. It's there. Um, <laughs> but specifically for this. You know, this is the season where folks that work within the industry are kind of like absolutely getting hammered on all sides by a lot of different aspects of award season and discourses around award season and news breaking fast and furious. So my first question, how you doing? What's going on? How are you holding up? <laughs> oh, I'm so tired because the thing too, and I think that Matt, uh, Mr. Maginato can also attest to this, is award season is already stressful but if you are somebody who is involved in horror in any stretch of the imagination what predates uh award season but halloween so we go into halloween then we go into holidays and then we go into award season so we really don't get a break for like a six month period there and it's really exhausting um so i'm tired but i am feeling pretty good i mean this year was also very interesting because we had the strikes so like you said news breaking is fast and furious because all of those deals that couldn't be made during the 100 days that the amptp refused to make a good deal um we're getting all those news breaks now and so it's a it's a lot all at once yeah this was a crazy year just for number one bj 100 you were correct the halloween into thanksgiving into award season into christmas into end of year pipeline is a nightmare it is just mm -hmm. I, it's awful <laughs> you know I, I think i'm trying to like cook dinner for thanksgiving and there's still like a pile of screeners i'm staring at going like i should have been halfway through all these by now and it, but yeah it's crazy to think that we had the strike in there too and that 
threw a wrench, you know, in a good way in, into our, our schedule, I guess to say, and like how we still somehow got to the end of this and we're talking about so many amazing movies and we're having to make these decisions. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure everything ended out super well in the way the contracts are designed. I think there's still some questions around AI and stuff of that nature, but I'm happy, happy we're on the other side of at least the beginning stages of that. Definitely. I think the unions are in a good place for the next time that they have to go to the table. That's how I feel about it. And I know since we're talking about that a little bit, you know, uh, BJ, I know you've also written films, directed short films, like you're on the other side of the industry too. So how are you, um, and I guess it's really a, a, an open question for all year round. Is you're kind of as you have friends in the industry, as you're working on one side of the industry, as well as covering the industry from the other side, during peak times of news and awards and questions and controversies, how are you kind of juggling these parallel career paths that you have on both sides of the industry? Um, to say that I'm juggling it successfully would be a lie. I think the way that I'm juggling it is like from a distance, people are like, Ooh, ah, wow. How impressive is this juggling skill? There's chainsaws and fire. This is incredible. But if you get close enough, you can see that my brow is just sweating and I am shitting myself because I am so scared that I'm going to drop something. So it looks from a distance like I'm doing great, but if you get close enough, you know, you know that it's a disaster waiting to happen. Um, that's, that's the way that I'll, <laughs> I'll describe it. But, uh, no, I, it's, it's, it's just tough. It's tough. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of sleepless nights. It's a lot of, you know, texting my therapist at three in the morning. Um, but it, it it's weird because I still love it despite knowing that it's also slowly, killing me. Maybe this is, you know, <laughs> maybe this is uh, my addictive personality coming to light. I have no idea, but um I love it. It's why I do what I do and I can also sit there and go, I'm such an idiot. Like I could just like be a banker and have like a, a like a nice 9 to 5 corporate gig, have a nice day, but uh it's just not how I'm wired. I'm wired to slowly kill myself by the things that I love. <laughs> As a reminder, as somebody who is the director of marketing at a credit union as a day job, very stable, not a lot of drama. <laughs> yeah, you get it. Yep, <laughs> like yep. I could, I could do that. I could make the pivot. I could do something that, you know, is a bit more stable. I'm sure my parents would be thrilled. It's just not what I, how my brain works. I just can't do it. I've, I've done what I refer to as survival jobs uh, for me. They, they can be thriving careers for other people. They are survival jobs for me. I've done that. And I just, I, if I'm going to be miserable, I would rather be miserable doing something that I love. Yeah. And I was going to say, I mean, the problem is you could take that nine to five, you could take the safety cushy gig, but uh, you'd probably just turn out like me and Monogle and still do the other thing that causes us pain on the side. Like that's, <laughs> that's our passion. Yeah. Our passion is literally masochism in the form of journalism. Yeah, like it really, that's a really great way of putting it. It is masochism by way of journalism. Like I will get done with my my work shift. I'll clock out from Slash Film. And then what is the first thing I do? I watch a movie so that I can have a reason to write about it. Like that's, it just, it never ends. <laughs> and doing it in an industry that will never love you back as much as you love it. Never, I mean, it is... never in a million years. This is an industry that wants to spit on me and tell me I'm a fucking idiot. So fine <laughs> yeah like i mean to date today's recording let's say i mean I, I love how we said we were gonna get into this maybe possibly but now it's just naturally coming up but like yeah like we're just seeing the after effects of the la times layoffs we're seeing the effects of a bunch of sites massive layoffs sports illustrated gone 
It's like as a yeah. sports fan, to me, that is crazy. Like saying that out loud is just insane to me. So like, you know, not only are we doing what we do, not only do we put ourselves through hell and back just to like cover an industry that we love so much, the industry itself is just, it, it, it's a big question mark right now. I, I mm-hmm. Sure. Do, are we, am I going to be doing the same thing a year from now? I have no fucking idea. Yeah, no. And that's really what is been so scary is that a lot of us are, you know, trying to find ways to save the thing we love from the inside out, knowing that we are up against giant corporations who have more money than we will ever see, more power than we will ever know. And they just don't care. They just don't care. Um, And it's difficult to have to have, have to care enough uh, for people that don't care because, you know, like you said, yes, yeah, Sports Illustrated is gone. People who work at the LA Times who were covering Sundance on work trips were let go while on the work trip with company cards that they were wondering, is this company card going to work? Am I going to be able to get home? What's going to happen here? Um, and that's a very, very scary place to be. And it's really easy for people to dismiss it as like, oh, well, who cares? You know, fake news, burp, 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 all that kind of nonsense, you know, but it, it's more than just entertainment journalism. It's all journalism. Um, when one of us suffers when when the arm of entertainment journalism can be disbanded and destroyed from the inside out what makes you think they're not going to do that with more pressing news so to speak uh like that that should be a concern to everybody this should be viewed as a canary in the coal mine um but because oh you're just talking about movies it doesn't really matter uh people like to think that it doesn't matter but it does it matters a whole lot and it's very strange that people aren't more concerned about this Oh, sorry, there's a good article that um, has been making the rounds. You shared it, BJ. I shared it. I saw a bunch of people sharing it, which is the uh, aftermath, which kind of is trying to do for video games what Defector did for sports content, worker-owned news site. Um, but they had written a piece. Uh, one of the, the the co-founders had written a piece about sort of what the industry takes from you, the hustle and grind of of not only Donato, you put it really well, um, like watching movies on your own time in the hope that you might be able to develop a pitch that you could send out to somebody else, you know, kind of like all of this unpaid labor piece that you do. And I think I, the, the thing that's that yes to everything, both of you said about the industries and the corporateness of it all. And, you know, the people that are getting caught up in the middle of it, but I think sort of my low watermark was the sports illustrated thing specifically because what happened with the Sports Illustrated thing is that the company that owned Sports Illustrated was like, we don't want to deal with this. And so they licensed the name Sports Illustrated to another company. And then, it, you know, in the middle of the contract, we're like, yeah, we don't want to do that anymore. Pulled the license back. And that company that was Sports Illustrated is no longer anything and died. And the fact of this is what most of these companies don't want to be in the consumer business. At the end of the day, they don't want to be developing content, developing essays, articles, editorials that are going out to audiences because audiences are too many people. They don't understand it. They want to be in the B2B business. They want to be packaging something that they can partner or resell and have a steady source of income that's coming from another corporation that means that their bottom lines are kind of set. They don't want the the, uh, uncertainty and the variety that comes with actually developing something that people will want to engage with and having to do that again and again and building audiences of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. And I think that's kind of what has bummed me out so much is like it really solidified the fact the Sports Illustrated thing really solidified the fact that like all they want to do is take a thing and then sell it to somebody else and make more money on it. It's that shell game that like eventually you're going to hit the bottom of that line and there's no company left who's going to pay you X plus 10% for the thing that you tried to sell for X plus 10%. 
Yeah, it's why pyramid schemes don't work. It's why right. multi-level marketing plans don't work. And yet we're like watching big corporate people just invent new words for <laughs> what is exactly that practice and not understanding why it's not working. Meanwhile, all of us know this is where you're heading and what these sorts of decisions lead to. And it, they just don't want to see the forest for the trees. <laughs> Everyone wants that content arm. Yeah, I'm using air quotes for anyone listening because I hate that word, but like everyone wants a content arm. Everyone wants it to happen overnight. And everyone thinks that you can just create a website, go viral, and all of a sudden you're raking in millions of views and stuff like that. And like, it, it is just over and over again, how frustrating, you know, if you just build organically, like all these sites that became popular, the slash films, like, like, especially, you know, that was one of the first OG film websites. And there's a reason it got the reputation it did is because for years and years and years, it did organic traffic, it built an organic audience. And like, that's how it got to being what it was. And, you know, I see a lot of companies now that they just, you know, how many sites have I written for alone or any of us, like, honestly, that brought us in to be like, oh, okay, we're going to ramp things up, we're going to start things kind of over fresh, and we're going to be a new voice in the in the industry. And it's like, no, you're not. It's cute. You're going to pay me to write for a few months and then give up. But like, I, I don't know, like, I, I don't know what to do, you know, with that information anymore, because I also fear a little bit for like the audience. And I, I fear a little bit for like, what is actually yeah. desired now? And is the kind of writing that we all do actually, do people actually want it anymore? Because I just talk to my friends more and more and they just like, oh, so like, you know, what YouTube critics do you watch? Like what TikTokers and stuff like that? And listen, get your, get your shit. Like I'm not, this is not a rant against YouTubers and TikTokers, but like at the same time, like I think the audience is shifting in a way that again, makes me very nervous that I don't know if our kind of writing thrives in, in, in the future. Oh, definitely. I've actually made a TikTok about this exact thing where I talk about how, you know, I'm not anti-YouTube critic, anti-TikToker in the sense that there are some people doing genuinely incredible work, like some of the best work in the industry. At the same time, there are also plenty of unethical people that are just saying outlandish things with zero journalistic integrity because there's really no oversight on social media apps. So they can kind of say what they want. And the only thing that's going to stop them is getting hit with a uh, cease and desist. Uh, but the the thing that happens is that because it is such a front facing world of criticism and writing in order to be successful, you also have to be a personality. You have to be somebody who knows the cool editing tricks, who, you know, is able to speak on camera very effectively. And the, th the, the big thing that people don't want to admit, uh, you have to also maintain a level of appearance uh, that is going to be something people are interested in seeing every single week. And that then turns a landscape where a lot of the smartest, most brilliant people that I read, I know are like total shut-ins that don't want to be seen in public, that very much enjoy their privacy, are going to lose that. Some of the best writers we have are people who write under pseudonyms. And you can't do that when suddenly everything also needs to be a TikTok or also needs to be a YouTube video. And I believe that both pathways should exist. There should be the people who want to be the personalities, who want to be able to, you know, be on camera. Um, but there should also be people that don't. And the fact that we are eliminating the ability for people to just be writers 
is very strange. Uh, it used to be that you were just a writer and that's all you needed to be. But now you have to be a writer and you have to do your own marketing and you have to be a quote unquote content creator. And you also have to have all of these different avenues that you work in. And for someone like me, I'm very privileged in that I can do all of those things. I don't want to, but I can, and I'm being forced into it. But there are so many people that that is just not their ministry. And it's very strange that we are now forcing people into landscapes that they don't want to be in, in order to, you know, pay rent. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm glad that we're, I'm glad that we're not necessarily taking the fight to, to YouTube and TikTok folks. Cause I think that like the kids are all right. And I don't mean, Hey, the kids are all right. I mean, the kids are, they're fine, right? There are good content creators on both of those platforms, people that I learn from. But like you said, BJ, there's a lot of folks that are, that are just in it because if this was 10 years ago, they would be the person quote tweet dunking on anybody who would get them a little bit of clout and growing the platform, right? Mm -hmm. Their approach to the industry is platform agnostic. It's just outrage and, you know, catapulting off the backs of, of other folks. But I do think, you know, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that, you know, there's a couple of theater kids in this particular podcast now or ex theater kids, BJ, you have much more of a claim to that than I do, but I also <laughs> was a theater kid for a while. And so there's a, there's a level of comfort or at least I don't fall apart. Right. If I need to be at the front of, of, um, a screening, if I need to be on video, if I need to be on a podcast, things like that, like I can be versatile and I can string a sentence together in real time, which is like, my favorite quote, I think Donato's even heard me say this before. My favorite quote of all time is a Mark Twain quote, which reads, I'm sorry I wrote you such a long letter. I didn't have time to write you a short one. Not everybody wants to do the work in real time, right? A lot of folks, some of the greatest writers we have, their first thought isn't going to be their best thought. They need time to rewrite and revise themselves. And that immediacy piece, you know, sure, video editing is part of that. But this like go live, immediate kind of, you know, react to stuff. I feel like we lose... This is a conversation that dates back to the beginning of film criticism, but I do feel like we lose a little bit of the nuance of people who are allowed to go back and kind of take time to think about what they want to say. That's always been the case, but I think video exacerbates it. I agree completely. And I mean, this is something that I deal with with my own show because this ends at prom are audience leans younger. Uh, we have a lot of young millennials, Gen Z listeners, and a lot of them, the way they consume podcasts are through the video uh, format. They, they're like, when are you going to start doing videos and putting them on YouTube? And it's like, well, probably never because we record in our living room, number one. And number two, we record in our living room in the summer in Los Angeles when it's hot. I'm not wearing pants. Like, I'm not going to put that on the internet. That's not happening. Sorry. Yeah. And I don't think that a lot of people realize that a lot of these like podcasts that do these video elements where people are, you know, in the room reading, you know, am I the asshole quotes or whatever, they're renting those spaces. Like they're paying for that. I don't got that kind of money. I am broke. No. So that's not going to happen. Um, so you have to deal with that. But then also to your point about the immediacy, um, a, you know, not a horror movie, but recently saw the new Mean Girls musical. And when I left the theater, I very much was like, eh, I don't care about this movie. I didn't need this movie. I don't like this movie. And then in the time it took me to get home, sit down at my couch, decompress from the screening and talk through what I had seen with, with my wife, Harmony, who, you know, listeners have known she's been on the show. 
I realized that I liked this movie way more than I initially thought I did. Had I been one of those people that's like, I just got out of Mean Girls. Here's what I think of it. My feelings about that movie changed within an hour of seeing it. So that that thought video that I would have hypothetically made would have been outdated by the time I got home. And I think that's something that we're seeing and you know, probably why our discourse tends to feel so knee-jerky is because people are operating off of that immediate impulse and they're not taking the time to sit and unpack okay, well, why is this the way that I feel about this movie? Because oftentimes that ends up being the the, the core answer because Mean Girls especially, I was like, this movie, they they nerfed the, the meanness. This is not as mean. I don't like this. And then by the time I got home, it was like, oh, but when I saw the original Mean Girls, my mom told me, eh, Heather's was more intense. This is nothing. No one's going to care about this. And obviously my mom was wrong in that situation. So I was like, you know what? I need to remind myself that I'm just doing the exact same thing that happened in this generational cycle. And it totally changed my perspective on the movie. And so, you know, those are important things of unpacking why you feel the way about a movie instead of just shooting from the hip. I want to talk a little bit about uh, This Ends at Prom, BJ, because I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about the industry and the challenges of it and the discourses. Has your experience with what you do changed since you've basically created your own platform? Because, and we can get into this in a second, but I know that how Donato and I think about all the various pieces of what it means to be a film critic and a writer and blah, 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 has shifted since we founded, started, whatever. Founded is a fancy word. So we'll say founded, certified, <laughs> forgotten. It really, it's changed the way that we think about it, about the, you know, the business side, the people side, all that kind of stuff. Not, you know, dramatically, but we find ourselves, it, it, it is a different experience than when you are somebody else's you know, Ronin, gun for hire, when you're basically coming in and writing a thousand words and then popping back out. Have you found that your relationship with the industry has changed a little bit since you started to to really build up a platform that you and Harmony are, it's the thing you're known for now? Yeah, it's, I'm glad that you pointed that out because it is very weird that I, you know, cut my teeth on horror and for many, many years I was like the go-to horror girl and now that is not the case. And it's very fascinating because then we get a lot of like the, like the new guard of horror people come in and they don't even know who I am. And I -hmm. have to fight those urge to be like, do you know who I am? Uh, Which is really funny. But uh, my feelings in the industry have definitely changed because specifically with this ends up prom being a an area that focuses on teen films, which is a subgenre that had its heyday, you know, in the eighties and nineties and has been struggling for relevancy ever since. Um, I've been seeing the ways in which people obviously completely discredit and count out uh, an underserved market. Uh, the fact that it, at the end of 2022, um, backslash film we did a lot of predictions of like what do we think is going to happen in 2023 and i very firmly said barbie will be the biggest movie of the year period hands down and everyone was like no i think it'll be successful but i don't know if it'll be that big and i'm like i am telling you it will be the biggest movie of the year and i was right (laughs) because i you know i now think about it in ways uh i think about the industry and assess the industry in ways that you know, are kind of uncommon than what we typically did because people don't like to think about underserved communities. Um, But at the same time, uh, what's fascinating is that my audience base is predominantly uh, women and predominantly queer people. And so despite the fact that we are very popular, we don't get to have the financial gain that a lot of other film podcasts have because uh, what are two rep- like groups of people that do not make as money on the dollar as, you know, straight white men? Yeah. 
women and queer people. So we can be as popular as, as we can be, but we are still serving a community of people that are disenfranchised financially just because of systemic issues. So that's interesting. And then even further on top of that is, you know, this and the prom covers titles more than just, you know, the big high school teen movies like a mean girls uh like we're talking about persepolis soon which is a graphic novel coming of age story about the iranian and iraqi revolutions and that is a heavy movie to talk about and it's gonna make some people uncomfortable it's gonna make a lot of the people who probably cared way more about margot robbie's uh supposed snub for barbie than they did the fact that america Ferrera got nominated um so you know that's me calling out my my fellow film friends who pick foundation matching on the same side of the color wheel as me. Um, you know, the, so that is also something that I have become way more in tune with is just watching how our own episodes and our own conversations perform. Uh, a lot of people are not ready to sit in their discomfort. Um, and I think that we do see that reflected in the general film landscape of how many people push back against movies like May, December, things that make them feel really uncomfortable because they don't want to go to that place where they got to figure out what it all means. Um, and that is, you know, with your big Oscar movies all the way down to, you know, a movie like Daydream Nation, which is a 2010 Kat Dennings movie where she has an affair with a teacher and she's in the power position. People don't like it. They don't like it. It makes them feel icky and it makes them feel weird. And, you know, again, that makes me also nervous for the, you know, the, the film world going forward, because if the algorithm tells a bunch of number crunchers at a studio that people don't like being challenged, we're going to start getting less challenging art. But hopefully, you know, independence will fill that void. But, you know, money, capitalism, everything's terrible. <laughs> Monopolies, the restriction of freedom of creativity, the right, just <laughs> onward and forward. Uh, and no, I, I like uh, the point you just made about like how I think movies are being read. And, you know, like the, the conversations we have about some of the Oscar contenders, even just, you know, I was talking about Oppenheimer, not recently, but recently enough. And the person looked at me and was like, yeah, but how can you like a movie that like so clearly is on Oppenheimer's side? And I'm like, I, it's not. I, I'm like, I it sure it's isn't. Not. <laughs> yeah, and like we had like a, a a debate in the middle of a bar for like a few solid minutes of this person trying to convince me, and like you know, it was the thing of like, well, he's the protagonist. Obviously, the way they shot it is from his point of view, so obviously it's it, it's it's on his side. And I'm just like, well, okay, it's never taking a side. Depictions, not endorsement. Yup, huge. <laughs> and I think another one too is like Salper. And I think the conversation, like you know, I've had it with Amelia. I've had it with a bunch of people at this point. And the whole idea that like Salpern is like painting the rich in such like a positive manner, and it's taking you know the middle class and the lower class and making them the villain and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, every, everyone's the villain uh, in, in Saltburn. Mm -hmm. Like, everyone's bad. I, I don't, how did you not get that? Like, and I think it is the idea that we live in a world now where you have to, if you have an opinion on a film, it has to be clickbait. If you have an opinion on a film, it has to get immediate traction. And what gets immediate traction? Calling out someone thinks politics, calling out something's, uh, you know, opinions and, and on certain matters. And I, I've just seen that this year in a way that has made me, May, December, you said it too. Like, that, that was another perfect example. And, I don't know. I've just seen in a way that like media literacy has taken such a nosedive in a way. And we're willing to look over certain things or not look hard enough just to get that hot topic opinion, whatever you want to call it, the hot take. 
my most like boomer old man yells at cloud opinion is that I, <laughs> I miss the days when you could just be a hater. Like I missed the days when it was like, why don't you like this movie? I don't know. I don't like it. I just don't like it. It doesn't jive with me. It's, it's not for me because now it's like, well, why don't you like it? Well, I find it to be incredibly harmful and problematic. And then suddenly we add this like moral quandary to it. And it's like, sometimes you just don't like it. Like sometimes a movie just doesn't, click with you and that's fine but what is that going to add to the quote-unquote machine what clicks is are you gonna get by just saying eh, it wasn't for me like you're not you're not gonna get it but if it's like this movie wasn't for me and if you like this you are also satan then it's like okay well now i have to click on this and find out why am i satan the Exorcist Believer, anti-abortion. Like, wait, wait what? <laughs> was like, no, it's not. That movie's actually pro-abortion, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to dox my wife here, so I won't name the movies in particular that she often references this with, but she, she often remarks about the fact that she'll watch stuff that is popular and uh, quote-unquote progressive, and she'll dislike it. And then she'll read stuff where people are like, yeah, because the way they show women and Andrew's like, no, no, no. The, I, the reason that you and I don't like these this movie is very different reasons. Like, I am not on your boat with this stuff. I'm just saying it's bad. I don't like it because it's bad. Right to your point, PJ. Yeah. And I have this, <laughs> I posted about it when like the Barbie discourse was going on with the Oscars where I was like, being a fan of the Barbie movie is a lot like being a wrestling fan. I don't want to be lumped in with half of you weirdos. <laughs> like, because my feelings about this are totally different than some of you uh, but that's just what we do we we've ex- in in a positive and negative way the media that we consume has become extensions of all of our identities and the same way that i think we as horror fans can all relate to this of all of the assumptions people place on us for liking horror movies we're now doing that with literally every movie of well if you like Saltburn, then that means this about you if you like barbie that says this about you if you like killers of the flower moon then that means this and that's not a good way to assess art or the people that consume it by any stretch of the imagination, but we are all in hell. <laughs> I'm sure you did this uh, intentionally because you are a, a fabulous guest and podcast host, but speaking of hell, Oh, I, I think... did. Thank you for taking that alley-oop. Let's go. I got it. I'm going to, sl- I'm going to slam dunk it. Speaking of hell, uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the movie that BJ has chosen for us, which is Alleluia, the devil's chorus or the devil's chorus. Alleluia. It's a whole thing in Wikipedia. It doesn't really matter. The Devil's Chorus? Or sorry, the Devil's, what did I say? The Devil's Carnival. I keep saying the Devil's Chorus. It's Choir Kid. Hallelujah, the Devil's Carnival. We're going to talk about it in just a sec. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So today on the show, we are going to talk about a film, a sequel to The Devil's Carnival. This is Alleluia, The Devil's Carnival. So this film is a feature-length sequel to what was originally a short film. The first one is is under an hour. Um, This movie is directed by Saw regular Darren Lynn Bousman. It picks up where the short left off and features Hell in Rebellion, with the devil sending trainloads of lost souls to dump on Heaven's Gates. This understandably sits poorly with the big man himself, played once again R.I.P. to the wonderful Paul Sorvino, who sends his number one agent to parlay with hell. 
Meanwhile, the devil, as he did in the, the original short, breaks out his storybook to share the tragic tale of two heavenly recruits and their potential falls from grace. BJ, this has been, sometimes we have a guest, right? That we want to invite back or invite on for the first time. And Donato's like, we're trying to get this person. This was a bundle. Donato was like, mm-hmm. we're going to get BJ and we're going to get BJ to talk about Alleluia, the Devil's Carnival. So what at what point were you like, I got to do the sequel? <laughs> so here's my feelings on it, is that the Devil's Carnival should have been a trilogy. It unfortunately is not going to be a trilogy. So I came on to talk about the original Devil's Carnival, which was clearly just this big passion project and was, you know, like you said, it's under an hour. It is basically a glorified black box production, which I love <laughs> quite a bit. Um, but Alleluia, I think, is this is more in line of what they wish they could have done with the first one. Um, you're getting a lot more characters. The budget is up, but still, as a reminder, it is like $500,000, which is a nothing budget for a musical, especially. Um, But they get to do feature length. They get to do a little bit more storytelling. The first film, while yes, has an overarching story is very much like songs that are also, you know, parables. Um, Whereas this, the songs are more in line with the story they're trying to tell and the, the, the building tension towards what should have been a third finale, which we unfortunately did not get. Um, Mm. so I feel like it's wonderful to talk about both of them because they're so similar and yet so different from one another and yet still nobody watched either. (laughs) Yeah. And it's worth noting that, you know, it's available now. So it's it's available on streaming. People can watch them. You can rent them. You know, spoiler alert for our how does this get rediscovered? It's These are Tubi films. They're on Tubi, which means they're right there, folks. They're so easy. You can check them out. But I know that both of these films also did sort of an unconventional, you know, release cycle, which had them showing up once in every major city, kind of a rolling road show. Again, the theaterness of this all. Um, and I think that that's, you know, wonder what a movie like this would have done like if you put it in front of the like the right theater forward crowd if you'd been able to do more of the rocky horror kind of stuff with it because i think that i've been i've been sitting i finished it yesterday and i've been kind of overnight have been mulling on it and trying to figure out where this movie sits in terms of inspirations and genres um and even more so than the first one i think i'm just at a bit of a loss that's fair i think that's fair i do think that the Darren Limbausman and Terrence Zenudnik musicals, um, so these two, as well as Reaper the Genetic Opera, they are all kind of either you get it and it and it meshes with you or it yeah. doesn't, which I think is kind of incredible because we don't have a lot of movies that exist that way. Um, the, these movies just really speak to my sensibilities of a lot of the stuff that I like. Um, I am such an easy mark for oh, you got Ted Neely and Barry Bostwick? I'm mm-hmm. good. Like that's that gets an, its own star on its own before I even seen the movie in, in my overall rating for it. Um, so I definitely get the people that don't get it because I know plenty of them who don't get it. Uh, but this is just something that I I enjoy. I love the the flashiness. I love the character designs that are not fully explained and you just kind of have to accept it because to me that feels very theater of Mm -hmm. we've made a choice uh that's the choice deal with it uh which i kind of respect and you know above all the same the same thing i feel about this movie is similar to how i feel about the original devil's carnival is that i 
am always going to have a soft spot for filmmakers that pursue their vision and do not make any apologies for it and do not make any concessions for it because I'm sure that if there were other people in a production room they would have said this song needs to be catchier you can't have you know all of these like old men wearing all of these and like being just old men and young women and really no one in between um, I'm sure there would have been a lot of those conversations and would that have made this a more marketable more successful movie probably but it would have been at the uh, sacrifice of their vision and the people that they wanted to work with. And I respect that. I respect them sticking to their guns. Yeah. And I want to defend myself and then throw uh, Donato in here, just, just as a clarification, not saying that I don't enjoy it uh, or that it didn't work for me. It is. And you kind of just hit on it. It's usually I need to understand, or at least have a shortcut of like stylism that's going on in music. And I think what's fascinating about these movies is that, you know, it's sort of, one foot in the Tom Waits world, one mm-hmm. foot in, and I always, I feel like I always pronounce this wrong. Weimar Republic, the, like the pre-World War II German jazz meets like jazz mm-hmm. classical music fusion, where it's sort of not really, you know, um, easily contained or easily described songs, strong sense of the Gothic and theatricality that's part of it. It's, and, and I actually went and listened to a couple of tracks from uh, the composer, Sar Hendelman has an album that he released, I think in 2008. And it's very much in those kind of lines too, like musically, stylistically, very this, very much the same as both of these films um, and Repo the Genetic Opera. So I think for, for me, the thing that I, that I like slash struggle with this is that it is not giving you music that, you, that you're going to necessarily engage with or, or remember or get, they're not earworms. They're not going to get stuck in your head outside of the context of the film in which they exist. When you're watching it, the music and what's going on on screen makes perfect sense, but it doesn't work as well divorced from the experience of sitting down and watching the movie. And that's kind of fascinating to me. That's very much so that feels like these people have a sense of style and vision of what they want to execute on. And we're going to do it, even if it doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to sell you know, a, a, a thousand vinyls with, you know, all the tracks from this film on it. <laughs> so definitely I, I, I do. I like it. I, um, I think I like this one better actually, even the original, maybe that's just tech nine. I don't know, but it's, <laughs> it, yeah, it's the non singleness of it, right? Like the, the non-commercial consumption, the way that it's sidestepping, even sort of like conventional chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, bridge, you know, like that kind of stuff. It's fundamentally uncommercial which makes it a very interesting parallel to the conversation we were having prior to when we started talking about the movie is how much of this is defined by commercialness otherwise. Definitely. I mean, and this, these movies are also coming out during a time period where we were starting to get this emergence of kind of the dark cabaret music style. Um, I mean, typically that's associated with, you know, everyone's most problematic person. They were a fan of in high school, Amanda Palmer um, and the Dresden dolls, Emily autumn, who was in the original film, uh, the tiger lilies, Voltaire, a lot of these artists that were doing this kind of, music for artsy goth kids is the way that I'll describe it. And these movies feel very much in line with that, which is also fascinating because then they double as time capsules because dark cabaret absolutely still exists, but it does not have, like there are people 
there there are not people having like full gothic victorian dress tea parties in the middle of parks as much as they were during the late 2000s early 2010s um so this also is a relic of that time period as well which i love time period and uh time capsule movies um especially because this shouldn't be like this should not be a time capsule film it but it is um because we we just don't we just don't have weirdos being this kind of weird anymore and i miss that (laughs) yeah this was the swing era for goth kids uh, oh god yeah (laughs) i know i'd love to hear hear from you because i know that like you and i when we go head to head on movie musicals especially horror musicals it gets interesting sometimes so tell me about your relationship to hallelujah yeah, I mean, number one, I will say that, like, selfishly, I just texted BJ and was like, yo, I need to do Aliyah for the podcast now. Like, <laughs> I was like, we're, we're recording that episode because I need I need it in my bones. And I do. I, I wanted to see your reaction to this because it gets way more into the religious and theological aspects than than the first one, even. And I kind of wanted to see your take on the whole corporate America heaven and, uh, you know, circus carny hell hell takes. But no, I mean, I, I remember when this came, the Rolling Road show, as you mentioned before, was how they showed the Devil's Carnival, uh, Alleluia, and it came through for uh, New York, and I was stoked to review it. I got the chance to like attend it and stuff like that, and I was so disappointed because I knew we really weren't getting a third when I walked into that theater for the New York date for Alleluia, the Devil's Carnival, and it was woefully unattended, unfortunately, and they, like it was such a bummer to me because... I, you know, to echo, I don't, I don't want to echo what BJ said, but like, this is what I'm looking for in a lot of aspects of a horror musical. Like, I love the dark cabaret stuff. I love the circus elements. I Like, even just the war paint that uh, Lucifer has on at the end is just, it, it's, it's my vibe. I'm looking at this thing, like the bayonets to me, like, I love that. I love that aesthetic. I love all that stuff. So I was drawn in from the beginning. Um, I, I think that the sequel is unfortunately stuck being a midpoint and it will forever be that unfinished midpoint uh which which is so disappointing because for all the reasons we have talked about thus far and i really want to see heaven versus hell and all the music that we're going to get out of that like the way that bousman built the cast for this sequel and brought in so many more talented artists where even like the blacksmith is Danny Warsnop, like the the uh, vocalist for Asking Alexandria. And like, you know, he was going to have a song probably in the next one and just laying the foundation for what we could have gotten in a third film. Um, so I, I struggle with it because I like it a little less than The Devil's Carnival uh, original, I think. I think that the first one is better being a tight 60 or just, sorry, right under 60 minutes. I, I think that is correct. And I think Alleluia overstays its welcome just a tad bit but i still love it dearly and i still cherish it and it's one of those time period capsules that not only brings me back to an era but it also will forever just be the thing that was never finished and it will be one of those projects where like i will cherish it in a way because i know it deserves so much better and i like it i watch it i enjoy the hell out of it how could you not like something that you literally get david hasselhoff and tech nine in back-to-back scenes like it (laughs) Yeah, like ha- like how like a transistor from David Hasselhoff to Tech Nine. What what are we watching? <laughs> yeah, you know you're totally right, and you know to to piggyback off of you know we're never gonna get to see the third. Like the fact that Paul Sorvino like 
someone finally really knew what to do with Paul Servino, somebody who is one of the most decorated actors, but it feels to me like no one understood him better than Darren Lynn Bousman. Like between Repo and both Devil's Carnivals, like he just, he knew what to do with him and he knew what kind of music to let him sing and what kind of energy to bring to a character. Like he, he just nails it in these movies. And the fact that like, he like he just gets to to park and bark like in a movie he just gets yeah. to stand up there with a microphone and just wail and you're just like god we we deserved so much more from the from this actor <laughs> than what we got and we still got a lot of great stuff out of Paul Servino but i feel like Bowsman just got him he just got him on a level other people didn't yeah, and Donato, I'll um, I'll answer your question about the kind of the theology of it, right? As as everybody's favorite, you know, film critic lapsed Catholic, which is apparently the role that I fulfill for you and a few other people. <laughs> um, you know, I it, the Ted Neely stuff in this is is great, not only because he's great, but also the one of my favorite things about Jesus Christ Superstar as a as a musical is the centering the fact that the story is is framed and centered around Judas that the, the, the central conflict um, isn't, I mean, it is, but it isn't so much Jesus deciding whether or not he's going to go through with things, but it's also kind of like the, the damnation of Judas being like, if I don't do this, then Jesus can't do that. And so like the fuck man, like, what am I going to do here? And so there's the, like the idea of God is sort of this, it was a little early, but not too early, like Trumpian kind of like, you know, shades of um, Bioshock and other stuff in the way that heaven is presented there. I think that's really interesting to me. And I think that that certainly allows the film um, a kind of theology that I really enjoyed. Like, I really like how hard this goes into some of the elements of that. You know, right now, over the last couple of years politically, of course, we've seen right wingers that are like, we're going to bus people, we're going to, we're going to bus refugees and immigrants into like New York city and dump them outside, you know, whoever AOC's house or whatever. And we're going to, it's going to be a political gotcha. And the movie basically opens with a version of that where like hell is like, yeah, we're just going to dump all these people off your gate. We don't want them. We don't, we're not going to deal with them. You deal with them. And the, the, the political kind of overtones and the bad corporation, the Wayland Utaniness, I guess of, of heaven here, it's a lot of fun. Sometimes when you expand the scope of world building with a feature or a sequel or something that follows up, it's clear that they never had any more ideas than they did in the original. And they're sort of like wallpapering on stuff to make it work at a bigger budget and as one more. Um, but I think, you know, we've talked about this and, and BJ, you said this too, like this was, this was the goal. Like this is the thing that was supposed to be kind of the vision of this all along. And it's beautiful to see it realized, even if it's only for an hour and a half out of what could have been, you know, three, four hours of, of a triptych of films. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your point with having, you know, the Jesus Christ superstar, like getting Ted Neely in here, Jesus, like JCS is one of my favorite pieces of music period. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Norman Jewison RIP for bringing that into, into a movie and turning, you know, changing movie musicals forever and also changing what, what is popular in music forever. So I do know that, uh, Darylin Bowsman is a massive, massive fan of JCS. He's talked about it a lot, uh, over his career during different interviews. So getting Ted Neely in there and like getting to write music for him, that also 
adds a level of enjoyment to me in watching this movie because it's like this feels so thematically appropriate. This is, you know, proof positive that everybody working on this movie knows what movie they're in, that if they're going to make something about heaven and hell, they're going to get Jesus to come and sing a song. And also just like getting to write music for him, like getting to write music for your hero. Like I can't imagine what that must've felt like. So that again, it adds just this level of enjoyment to it because it's clear like this is thought out. This isn't something that they're not putting a hat on a hat here. They are expanding the, they're expanding the story. They're expanding the lore in more than just textual ways. It's also meta textual. Right. Like there's so much happening. And I think that that's brilliant. I mean, and also getting like Adam Pascal as the agent in here, like I think is re- like, it's just really inspired. That's the, that's the word I'll use for these movies above all else, the devil's carnival movies. And especially this one, they always feel inspired. Every decision feels intentional. Nothing feels like it was half, half asked, even if it doesn't work in some instances, or if you know people don't get it this is what they wanted to do and it's unquestionable this is what they wanted to do and i think uh having ted neely sing original songs is good having adam pascal literally say what's the buzz tell me what's happening yes great oh so good so good (laughs) well i was gonna say talking about intentionality do you think it was intentional that paul servino did that little penguin walk on stage when he's like waddling around that is it i don't know why <laughs> one of the funniest things of the whole movie for me is when he's in his big song and dance at the towards the end and like they just cut back to him and he's just penguin waddling around the stage and i'm like is that's your stage presence all right i love it i love it <laughs> and i love that it is drawn like the obvious stuff are you know the old broadway guys for sure for sure but bringing in people like tech nine like is just wild to me it's just so cool and i mean another very unfortunately problematic person but like getting jimmy urine in here for a cup of coffee is you know again speaks to this time capsule thing of like well if you like dark cabaret you probably were really into mindless self-indulgence at some point and i sure was um so (laughs) you know having him here too i think is like again it's just inspired everything in here is in inspired and ogre being here too i mean I I just love it. I love this marriage between this like classic world of like rock and roll Broadway and then also like weirdo shit music. It's just, it's great. Well, and I want to give credit to obviously a Terrence Zudnich. uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but it's as much as we can talk about Bousman and we can talk about his direction and his vision for everything. I mean, Zudnich is the one writing it. Zudnich is the one behind Mm -hmm. the actual story and everything else. So I, his writing is so sharp and so like cloying and funny and also really dark and depressing at the same time. Uh, So, you know, he is playing the devil. He's playing Lucifer and the way he's able to deliver the lines with like a smirk and a laugh, like every line he delivers is like a slap to the face uh, of God. And it's, it's such like chef's kiss diabolical, but also you're on his side somehow. Like you're, you are watching this movie going like, Oh no. Yeah. No, he has the right idea. And like, he might be talking in parables half the time and he might be like doing the theater kids stuff where it's overplayed, but God, I I love his writing style. I love his delivery. I think like he is, it's such a shame that we don't have more of this stuff between Rebo and the devil's carnival. Like, man, I want to see way more horror musicals from his fucked up mind. I mean, and to to your point about like, oh, he's playing Lucifer, but he has the right idea. I can't help but then think about how 
you know, people will bring up all the time, like the tenets of Satanism and how like the tenets of Satanism are basically like, yeah, your body is yourself and like believe in yourself and believe in the betterment of the world. And like basically be a good person and do it because not because a God is telling you to, or because you're scared of damnation, do it because it's the right thing. And it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Like that's, <laughs> that's how we should be operating. And I think that it's just, it makes this movie really delicious to, you know, kind of dismantle the idea of an all knowing good and an all good kind of God um, versus an all bad Lucifer and Satan, because, you know, even looking at the actual Bible, God's a vindictive asshole sometimes. Like, hey, go kill your sons. Why? Oh, don't actually do it. I just wanted to see. Like, that's messed up, man. Like, that's messed up. Come on. God's a little messed up. God's the divine equivalent of that one friend that was like a total asshole and then had a kid and then like totally mellowed out. And you're like, oh, okay, that's what the New Testament is. That's just like you entering your parent era. And you're like, man, we used to fuck shit up. But now, you know, it's like 8 p.m. I got to I gotta stay in and, you know, forgive some people. It's like, oh, God, God really mellowed in his in his 30s and 40s. <laughs> no, but you're totally right, though. Like, you look at Old Testament God, and it's like, we're flooding people. We're just killing people because I felt like it. It was real petty. Like, God's really petty in the Old Testament. And so to have a movie that is like, yeah, I'm not going to, you know, we're going to put him in all white, but he's also not going to be like this you know, a, a infallible being like he's going to kind of suck sometimes. I love that. And, you know, that's a more honest look at a, at, at religion as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, so the question, you know, I think we talked a little bit about last time, you know, the music is heavily part of this. This is a musical. Uh, do you like, do you think bringing in Hasselhoff tech nine and all these other styles uh, helped bring another dimension to the sequel? Because for me, I watch it and, I am more enamored by the way that every song jumps from genre to genre. Like there, there doesn't mm -hmm. feel like there's a through line. Uh, obviously you have the God element. Uh, Sorvino is an opera singer basically. So like you, you're getting that element from his vocals and then it jumps to the rock and roll aesthetic, obviously with some other people. Tech nine is just spinning fire because that is what he does. Cause he's one of the best at what he does. So like, do you think that that was the right approach to be so eclectic versus I, I think I'll, the first Devil's Carnival was more, we, we knew where the songs were going in each one and we could have some like musical through line. I mean, I guess then that, that sparks the question of like, well, what defines the good decision? Uh, because I think for this story and for what they're doing, it is the right decision um, to have things be so eclectic, to have so many different genres playing with each other because it, it, it throws the audience off because you don't know where it's going. You can't follow those familiar beats that you get usually from a musical. Um, so in that sense, I do think that it's the right call. But it, then again, it's like, well, would this have been more popular, been more marketable if it was, you know, catchy, catchy, fun time? Uh, yeah, definitely it would have. Um, and I think that's why of all of the musicals they've done, the reason that Repo is the one that most people are familiar with and the one that was the most popular is because that one does follow the more traditional format of a musical, whereas this doesn't. Like, this is very much a musical for theater kids, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I think that that is a positive thing. But at the same time, like, All Aboard, uh, Everybody's Doing the Arc, is, like, one of my favorite songs in here. And it's because it reminds me of something 
like a combination of anything goes and meet me in St. Louis, um, which, you know, that speaks to my sensibilities. I love everything Adam Pascal is doing. And then of course, you know, tech nine is great. Um, and then the songs that, you know, don't resonate with me as well are the ones that do sound the least musical theatery. And it's like, no, that's just my personal sensibilities coming through. And that's fine because I'm sure that there are people who watch this that are like, I can't stand that arc song. It's too cheesy. I don't like it. I prefer this other song because it's harder and that's fine too. Um, so there is a little bit of something for everybody because you're going to get the people who watch this movie because they're dorks like me. And then you're also going to get the people who watch this movie because it's horror and they want to watch a horror movie that maybe are not going to be as in tune with, uh, with some of the more traditional, you know, music. Um, so I think that they made the right call, um, probably to the film's financial detriment, but I still think it's the right call. I think it's also worth noting. And one of the things that really strikes me about this is they didn't just get Broadway people, right? They got Broadway people that had, experience in film adaptations as well you go through the list of actors adam pascal has been in films he's been in the cinematic adaptation of rent whether you think that's a particularly successful project or not <laughs> he fucking did it um you of course you have bostwick you have ted neely who've done film versions of musicals as well and i think you know and, and then david hasselhoff who i will argue everybody thinks of him as the german pop star he was a serviceable lead in Jekyll and Hyde, which is one of my five favorite musicals of all time. So I will, and there exists a full stage recording Hamilton style of that from like the early 2000s. So I think part of what, what makes the songs work um, for me, even though, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, stylistically, they're, they're very varied, is the fact that they're designed for film, right? Like I think mm -hmm. that these are, I think that these are songs that are requiring close-up performance. So much of this is exaggerated facial expressions. So much of this is the physicality of the actors across the board who, very importantly, know how to sing on camera the same way that they know how to sing on stage. This isn't just like pull the camera back and you know show somebody at a mid-range shot. These are people that the camera's getting right up in their face. Bostwick, of course, is doing like the most camp in his performance, like looking, the only character that looks directly into the lens and sings most of his songs, which is delightful. But I think that that's kind of the part of, of what makes the variety of music hold together is the fact that it's so rooted in performers that know how to be on camera singers, that know how to sing songs, musical songs, musical theater songs on the screen and make that work kind of at the larger scale than it is just like I'm at the back of the house and watching you sing. And so stylistically, whether it is you know, it leans a little bit more into, you know, old school Broadway, whether it leans a little bit more into dark cabaret, like the performers understand the assignment and are, are giving you that up close in a way that makes each of those pieces feel kind of congruent with each other. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I like that you called out that it is the exaggerated facial expression, because while this is a musical and there are, you know, moments of choreography, this is not like a big, large scale in the Heights style musical where, you know, the whole company's in a giant wide shot. It's not that. And because of that, the the benefits are that one, he can have some of these, you know, older guys that probably can't move the way they could yeah. in the seventies, um, still be able to absolutely shine on screen, which I just, I love that. I love being able to be like, this person is talented as hell. And here it is like, just let them go. And I think it's palpable when you're watching it, how everybody loves working on this. Like mm -hmm. it's just an energy that is 
it's so visible. Even, you know, like you said with Bostwick, like looking down the barrels, like he, he knows what he's doing and he's loving every second of it. No one in this movie feels like they're walking themselves through it. Even if it's just like a random background person who's wearing a wig, that's twice the size of their head. They are having fun. And I can see that they're having fun. And that again, it just, it keeps adding more stars to the star rating because of these like outside elements that I think are just such a lost art in so many other movies. Like we've gotten so obsessed with this like idea of realism and I don't want to remember that I'm watching a movie. I want it to feel real, which like, yeah, there's a place for that. But also I want people that look like they're having the time of their life and like are just enjoying making art and that's what this movie feels like to me is like a group of creative artists that are a bunch of weirdos making art and loving it even if they know that other people aren't going to be as into it as they are like there's something so magical about that to me yeah like tech nine let them put glitter in his beard to do this damn movie like that had to be a nightmare to remove after after set (laughs) right and like that that was like a look that we that was like really popular in like the disco era and then kind of went away and then it's been recently coming back like drag queens do this now but it's like no tech nine was doing that like years ago I do want to point out that we're all saying his his name incorrectly. It is Tech Nine. That is, I believe, <laughs> how you're supposed to say it. I used to listen to him so much. Like that was like my work music. I'm not even joking. That's that's a whole. He's other my era. my running playlist. If you look at my, yeah. my my running playlist, it's like six Tech Nine songs. It is oh, is yeah. the best stuff to run to. But yeah, but hilariously, I'm I'm Hasselhoff's song. I think that's that's my under underrated undersung hero song of the film. Like I, him as the stylist of heaven and sorry, Heavenly Pictures Incorporated uh and and that song of just i love the beat i love the rhythm and hasselhoff is such a powerful voice it's it's the yeah it's the thing we always forget and then he does it and you're like oh that's right you are a german pop star you are like a successful musical talent like it's he just blows through that and then it's from the second he walks out too it's not like a build-up he just he steps on camera and he just starts belting and i'm like that's right you fucking rule man For me, uh, yeah, the designer song, and I know, Monocle, you love chess. This is the Arbiter song for me of this movie, um, yeah. which I'm all about. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, that brings us to our last question for the podcast, which we always have to ask our guests. Um, and I feel like, I i don't know, I'm curious to see where you'll land this time, BJ, now that we're talking kind of about two films in, in connection with each other. This film is available but for, forgotten. You know, this obviously doesn't have the kind of attention that that we would hope it has, otherwise it wouldn't be showing up on our podcast. What do you think it would take for Hallelujah, The Devil's Carnival, The Devil's Carnival, the first film, these two as two parts of a non-trilogy? What does it take for these to find their audiences, having maybe missed that dark cabaret window, being on the other side of it a little bit, um, and being something that sort of sidesteps a lot of what we think of when we think of conventional horror musicals what makes this a movie or what allows this movie to be sought out by folks where does it need to appear what what makes it successful see all of my typical things because i know that the last time i was like i feel like maybe people will look it out now that paul servino has passed and then that didn't happen um I think it's going to need to operate by the never been kissed rule of all it takes is one person that you think is cool to tell you it's cool. Um, I think there's going to need to either be like a new horror musical 
or somebody who is one of those figures like a Megan the Stallion or Lil Nas X who is mostly a musician but dabbles in the world of horror to be like, you know what movie fucking rips? The Devil's Carnival. And you need that one person that you think is like irrefutably cool to tell you that this movie is cool and then I think people will seek it out. That's unfortunately like how I've evolved in my thoughts of like how do people find these lost you know films or find these movies that we love that nobody's really talking about you do need that one person to kind of like let it go because we can all scream as you know legions of there are dozens of us who like this movie but if you get one person with some clout and with some attention to say this movie's cool not only will it <laughs> influence people's uh, belief because they'll go into it thinking that it's going to be cool and therefore they're going to be more likely to believe that it's cool, um, but it'll it'll get the attention on it that it deserves. So I'm, ho- I'm hoping that there is someone out there who saw this movie in the 2010s and thought that it was awesome and, you know, has just been waiting for their interview time to talk about it. But then again, maybe that's why they don't want journalists uh, interviewing people anymore and asking them questions about movies that aren't related to Marvel, because then maybe we'll start uh, wanting to make more Devil's Carnivals and studios don't want that. Donato, what you got? It's hard because it is the midpoint. As I said, this is always the second chapter of a trilogy and you can't really market that to to be a a final product in a way, like if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, It's, you can't go to someone and be like, hey, Devil's Carnival, hallelujah, fucking rips, but it doesn't really have the conclusion that you're probably looking for. And I say that lovingly because this is a movie I cherish. And as I've said before, this is, that's one of the reasons I like it. It feels like a curio. It feels like something that's lost in time and we never got the third that would have finished the trilogy. Uh, but to make that marketable is hard. To do that is hard. And I mean, I, I we have talked on the podcast. I know some people in distribution and one of the people that I love very dearly, I, I, I'll text randomly just out of nowhere. You're like, so when are you going to release the uh, special edition Devil's Carnival uh, two pack and then put it all on vinyl? And the answer is always the same. Never, because it's not going to make us any money. And like, that sucks. Like, it sucks that that is the answer. And that is correct. Like, from a business perspective, that is 100% why. So like, to say it needs the physical release, it needs that special push. I do wish someday that somebody will take a chance and put these things in some awesome double pack with the music as well on vinyl like that. I would buy that in a heartbeat. I want the sheet music. I've been saying this for years. Give me the goddamn sheet music. Let people perform these in cabarets. Like it needs to be that kind of stunt marketing to get there, to get that attention. But I I do do want to shout out another show that just came out, Has Been Hotel. And another way maybe to get eyes on Devil's Carnival is to be like, hey, do you like Has Been Hotel? Because there's pretty much another version of it in the Devil's Carnival. And like Has Been is a little different. It is a cartoon musical and it is about the rehabilitation of sinners going back up to heaven and lucifer's daughter opens a hotel and she tries to rehabilitate people and send them up but there's like so many parallels here and there's so many cross wires where like it has been hotel you know lucifer is kind of dressed like a a circus ringleader and you see a little bit of the clown stuff and you see a little bit of the circus elements so like obviously there are parallels that you could use to to try and bring people who are now watching has been into the devil's carnival family vice versa too hopefully i i think i think has been i've seen two episodes and it's great but that's what it takes you know it's going to take the connection to something popular whether that is what bj said where it is a celebrity 
out of nowhere. Like if Megan Thee Stallion came out, I was like, yeah, I fucking love Dallas Carmel. Like, that'd be amazing. That's, that's the PR needs. <laughs> yeah. And I will, I will yes. And to what you're saying, Matt, uh, shout out to Andrew Underberg and Sam Haft who do the music for Hasman hotel. Those songs all fucking rip. And if you've only seen the first two episodes, th- th- some real good ones happen in like episodes four and five. Um, but both of them have done some great stuff. And I know Sam Haft is part of the living tombstone. So they are, you know, the people who made the, the song that's in the end credits of five nights at Freddy's. So we've got some good, we are in a good era of spooky kid horror music right now, which I I love yeah normally for this i would say one of my go-tos has always been like oh this is primed for lists right like since that's the currency of of the internet right now best horror movie musicals best musicals you've never seen blah 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 except if you have looked at the front page of google recently you would note that there is not a lot of rhyme or reason to how their new and a, a better than ever algorithm is treating you know, some of the organic search stuff. It is 90% ads or shopping credits, as well as like the word AI peppered liberally into any single um, organic listing that you see. So I would say organic search is less reliable than ever too, which means I'm going to, I'm going to third BJ, what you said. I think that this is, you know, to tie it all the way back to what we're talking about with Barbie, right? Like Gerwig has been talking as much as possible on any press tours she's done about the films that influenced her. You know, she has probably single-handedly inspired a new generation of people to go check out the Umbrellas of Sherberg and is is responsible for connecting film present and past in a way that people that aren't normally interested in those kind of conversations are going to seek out. So I don't know. I don't know if in 10 years time, somebody creates like a hundred million dollar horror musical or a hundred million dollar musical. I don't know if there's a filmmaker or a project that'll come along that the person will say like, oh, one of my biggest influences was these two Devil's Carnival films, and that'll be what opens the door. But I think we just need a cool kid. We just need a cool, popular, neat person to take all of their cool, popular, neat energy and be like, this is a, this movie kicks ass. You should go see it too. That's it. That's our commentary on Hallelujah, the Devil's Carnival. Um, BJ, you are in rarefied company as a three-timer here on the show. Um, so we will give you something we don't do for a lot of folks. We will give you time here at the end to talk about any projects or places that people might follow you on social media. We do this for everybody. Any places <laughs> people might follow you on social media and, and look for uh, some of the stuff that you've got in the work. So where do people seek you out? I am on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Blue Sky at BJ Colangelo. Uh, my podcast, This Ends at Prom, talking about coming age stories uh, marketed towards or about teen girls uh, across all genres can be found anywhere. We also have a Patreon where we talk about uh, boy teen movies as well as documentaries, music. We're doing a TV rewatch right now of the first season of Daria. Um, Lots of cool (laughs) stuff going on over there. You can find my writing over at Slash Film. Um, I'm kind of everywhere. And later this year, I'm not sure what the exact date is, but uh, my wife, Harmony, who has been on the show before, uh, our book on Sleepaway Camp comes out this year. So be uh, be on the look for that. It's just called Sleepaway Camp, and it is uh, coming from Die Die Books. That's awesome. I'm really, really looking forward to that one. I think Harmony Harmony is the last episode, and they were pumping it as, as I, I feel like every time we have you all, it gets closer and closer. We're down to like a year release date. So really, really excited to have that one out. Donato, what you got going on? Same as always, uh, at Donato Bomb, Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, and Blue Sky. Those are the big ones. What do I have going on? Everything and anything. Uh, just did some little Sundance coverage, did a little 
like I said, I got to write about Torque this year already, and we're not even a month into the freaking year. Uh, yeah, just pumped out a bunch of articles so far. I'm going to keep tweeting them. I'm going to keep posting them, and I'm never going to leave you. Uh, as for myself, you can follow me on pretty much Blue Sky is the best place these days. I've fully left Twitter, and I don't really do too much in other places. So Blue Sky is good. It's like monogol dot or at the Blue Sky string of stuff. Um, I also have an authory account I've lost for circumstances we don't need to get into uh, one of my regular outlets. And so you won't be seeing any reviews from me in the near future, but we're going to figure out a way to get that fixed. Um, but if you like what we're doing here on the podcast, encourage you to visit certifiedforgotten.com. Encourage you, encourage you to visit patreon.com slash certified forgotten. We have a free email newsletter that runs off of Patreon where you can sign up and get a weekly newsletter delivered right to your inbox where we talk about cool things that are going on in the community. I make dad jokes um, because that's fun to do too. So strongly encourage you to get on that, check out the website, check out the Patreon if you like what you've heard today. BJ, I have a feeling this is not the last time that we'll have you on Certified Forgotten. So maybe this will be the last horror musical we get from you for a little bit, but I'm excited to see what you bring back in, let's say, six to 12 months. That sounds beautiful. I luckily watch a lot of movies other people don't watch. So I've always, always got something I can pitch at you. Amazing. We'll see you then soon. Donato, take us out. What you got? Jiggle juice. Unfortunate. <laughs>